You're listening to the Informal Bible Study, a casual and applicational look at the Scriptures. I'm John Stonge, and it's great to have you with us today. Today we're going to be taking a look at another portion of Scripture from the book of Nehemiah. We'll be in Nehemiah chapter 2, starting with verse 9, and we'll be talking about the side of leadership that we rarely notice. I don't know if you're in a position of leadership or have aspirations of someday being in a role of leadership, but sometimes leadership looks one way from the front, but when you get behind the scenes, you discover that leadership is quite different than what you expect. And in the portion of Scripture we're going to be looking at, the book of Nehemiah addresses that. But before we take a look at that, I want to share just a couple quick things for you. If you would like to become a supporter of this podcast ministry, we actually have two podcasts, the Chapter a Day Audio Bible and the Informal Bible Study, which you're listening to right now. Uh, There's three quick ways that we encourage people to support that. Uh, All of them you could basically find on our website, which is pastor.us. So if you want to become a financial supporter and help us underwrite the cost of our hosting and production, there's a link to do so there. There's also a bunch of resources that you could utilize there if you click on the books link. And a third way that you could become a supporter of this ministry is by simply leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes. You could do that from the podcast app on your iPhone, or you can log on via your computer. But when you do that, it helps us connect with new listeners. So these are a couple quick favors that we ask of you each week if you haven't already done so. We certainly appreciate your help with these things, and they definitely help us as we seek to bring the Word of God to as many people as we possibly can through this format. So now let's take a moment and segue into looking at Nehemiah chapter 2, starting with verse 9. And this is a recording of a sermon that I shared at Core Creek Community Church. In just a moment, we're going to be taking a look at... um, The second part of Nehemiah chapter 2, and I want to say something before we do that. Um, Last week we began looking at Nehemiah chapter 2, and um, in the portion that we're looking at today, we're going to be talking about this concept of the side of leadership that we rarely notice. Now, one of the things you'll notice is a theme as we go throughout the book of Nehemiah is, you know, among all the things that are present there, one of the things that becomes very obvious is that you can see what godly leadership looks like. And there's a side of leadership that we rarely notice that gets um, typified here in the second half of Nehemiah. And I want to say something even before we look at that, or the second half of Nehemiah chapter 2, I should say. Um, as I share about this today, and we talk about something that, that relates to leaders, my guess is that there are some of us here today that may not look at ourselves as leaders. You may tend to think of other people as leaders, but maybe not so much yourself. And then there are some of us here today that may, part, you know, may think of ourselves as, as leaders. Um, I want to influence you or, or, or uh, give you a, a thought in your head. I kind of gave away the word that I wanted to use there uh, on accident. But um, I don't know if you ever heard this quote. John Maxwell once said that leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. Meaning that if you influence other people, whether you have a title or not, you are in a position of leadership. 
If you, you know, if there are people in your life, whether it be family members or friends or neighbors or people that you associate with, if there are people in your life that you influence, that your life influences, that your words influence, that your practice influences, and people copy you and learn things and do things based on what they observe in your life or hear from you, you, whether you have a title or not, are in a position of leadership in that person's life. So I don't want you to just think about leadership as we look at it in this portion of Scripture as something that has to have a title that accompanies it. Because the truth is, some of the best leaders in this world don't have titles. It's about how they carry themselves, how they live their lives in honor of the Lord, how they use the platform or the influence that the Lord has given them to be a blessing to other people. And as we look at this portion of Scripture, I want you to have that in the back of your mind so that you're not thinking leaders are other people. Because if you're somebody that has influence over someone, a child, a parent, a friend, a sibling, a coworker, whatever it may be, you are in a position of leadership in that person's life, and this applies to us all. So we're in Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to start with verse 9 today. Let me read there down to verse 20. This is what it states. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and uh, I and a few, a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I, expected the wall, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials and the rest who were, who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are, that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the privilege to take a look at it this morning as we've come together. Lord, we're so grateful that at the start of each week we have time that we can just set aside to worship you. Lord, we know that we could still be sleeping right now. We could all be 
home uh, resting and relaxing, but yet we've carved out this time to set it aside so that our week begins with worshiping you. And Lord, we have had the privilege of singing praise to you. We've had the privilege of praying to you. And now, Lord, as we take a look at your word, we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight. You tell us elsewhere, Lord, that your word doesn't return to you void. Your word impacts the heart of those who consume it. And so, Lord, we pray that as we take a look at this portion of your word, that you'd help us to understand more about you, more about your relationship with us, more about your plans for humanity, and more about what you're doing in and through our lives and how you can use us, Lord, to glorify you in the context that you've called us to serve you in. So, Lord, we pray that as we take a look at this event from the life of Nehemiah, that we would have greater insight into who you are, that we'd have greater insight into the work of Jesus Christ in our life, and that we would grow in our walk with you as a result. And we thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, as we've been looking through the book of Nehemiah just over the past couple weeks, I'll say this as we, uh, as we look at it. Nehemiah is a fascinating book, and he as a man was a fascinating man. Somebody certainly very interesting, somebody that we get to, to trace the hand of God at work in Nehemiah's life. One of the things that we saw as the book began is it tells us Nehemiah's position. And he was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And um, Nehemiah received word that the walls in Jerusalem were in shambles. And so he requests permission to return to Jerusalem from Persia where he's living so that he can ultimately be used of God to rebuild the walls surrounding Jerusalem. And his goal was not just a building project for the sake of a building project, the walls around Jerusalem being down signified the fact that the people needed both a spiritual and a social restoration. And it also signified the fact that they were wide open to attack and not just military attack, but also inf- an a- attack of influence, meaning they were surrounded by pagan nations. And those walls being down would provide a prime opportunity for uh, pagan influence to come in and infiltrate the land and lead the people away from a true knowledge of the Lord. I don't know if you saw this week how um, how they're encouraging uh, Windows comp- PC owners who have um, uh, QuickTime on their computer to delete it because it opens up the computer for a virus attack. I don't know if you saw that. So if you have a Windows PC with QuickTime on it, they're saying delete that because if you don't, you're, you're, you're wide open for a virus attack. And when you look at this here, you have Nehemiah at Jerusalem. The walls are down, and they're basically laying themselves open for a, an attack of influence in a negative direction where you would have people who, who are involved in paganism and idol worship that would now have an easy in to God's people and could ultimately influence them in a negative direction. Some of the things that we've already seen of Nehemiah, and we'll see this as the book continues, but he was a man of prayer, he was a man of great faith, and he was a man of action. He wasn't someone that got lost in his head. He took what the Lord impressed upon his head and his heart, and it came out through his hands. And Nehemiah gives us a picture of the work of Jesus Christ and how he leads and how he exercises faith and how he uh, is completely focused on the mission that's right before him. And in the portion that we're looking at today we see examples of another side of leadership. I think a lot of times when people think about leadership or being in a position of leadership, it's a coveted role. 
People look at leadership and they say, boy, you know, someday maybe I can be the leader there. Or maybe someday I can lead in that context. And then when the door opens and you find yourself in leadership, you quickly discover, this wasn't everything that I thought it was going to be. This isn't as glorious as I thought it was. In fact, what leaders quickly discover is that when you're in a position of leadership, you're the recipient of a lot of feedback. Most of it negative. Because people don't come to you and say, hey, just want to let you know, Everything's going completely fine today. That's all. Just want to take your time for a second and say, everything's fine today. Great job. All right. Catch you, catch you tomorrow. It doesn't go like that. You, you hear problems. You hear feedback. You hear uh, sad stories. Um, you're the one that finds yourself in a position where leadership sounded great, but you quickly discover it puts you in a spot to make you the chief servant of whomever you've been called to lead. That's what the essence of leadership is really like. And a lot of times we also expect there to be kind of like this continual pat on the back that comes with leadership. But most leaders don't really fully get appreciated until they're dead. That's the truth. That's when leaders really get appreciated. That's when we write books about them and and all that. It's like when you're dead, you'll be appreciated. But in the meantime, what can you expect? Well, one of the things gets illustrated here, and that's this. Expect opposition. Now, I'll say that this is universally true. It's true if you're in organizational leadership, but it's also true in household leadership. If you're trying to lead in your home, the Lord blesses you with children. Do you think your children are always going to comply with every directive that you give to them? Do you think that the organizations that you lead are always going to comply? If you're a school teacher and you're trying to lead in that context, if you're trying to give music lessons, do you think your students are always going to comply with every last thing that you ask them to do? No, that's not how human nature works. In fact, expect pushback, even from people that support you. Sometimes people just kind of want to test limits a little bit. But here you see Nehemiah right away. As he comes to Jerusalem, as he's about to lead the people in a very important task, one of the very first things he experiences, one of the very first things, is opposition. Re- look again at the first uh, couple verses here. Look like verse 9 and verse 10. It says here, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. So here he is with the letters from the king. You know, authorizing him to do this task. It says, now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So we're told right away, Nehemiah begins to experience opposition. And, And some of the people are named here by name. And there's an additional person that gets named at the end of this chapter, but we'll get to him in just a few moments. But here it tells us right off, Sanballat and Tobiah begin opposing him, begin standing in his way. Their hearts are against what God has called them to do. As Nehemiah is there seeking the welfare of the people of Israel, there are people who are in opposition to him almost immediately. A friend of mine who passed away, uh, I think about three or four years ago now, uh, spent about 40 to 50 years of his life in pastoral ministry. And both the, uh, one of the things I always appreciated about him was both he and his wife always served together as a team. They, they very much were a team. They weren't going in opposite directions when it came to the, to the work the Lord entrusted them. They worked as a team, and they were a great example to my wife and I. And there are lots of things that we always kind of credit them with having taught us by their influence and by their example. 
And uh, one of the things that they always had a passion for was children's ministries. And so they would always invest themselves in children's ministries. It was a burden that the Lord had placed upon their heart. And so at one church that he served, I believe he served this one particular church for 14 years or somewhere around there, he was telling me. Uh, that church was in a little bit of a nicer community, and the church had a pretty decent budget, and they decided to buy a bus. And what they did with that bus is the pastor would go out, he got his, his license to drive that bus, it was a full-size bus, and he would go all throughout the community on Sunday mornings and pick up anyone that needed a ride to come to, to worship, and he would bring them there, and he would drive the bus during the midweek to pick up kids that wanted to come to their midweek kids programs, and he would drive the bus to bring kids to camp, and he would drive the bus to bring kids to other things. And, and so that bus was something that was a big part of their ministry. He, he, he drove that at, you know, so that he could ultimately collect as many people as wanted to come and be part of what the Lord was doing and bring them there so that transportation wouldn't get in the way. And then after about 14 years serving in that context, the Lord led him to serve in another context. It was in a very impoverished community. And the church that he was serving there barely, you know, could survive financially. And it reflected the community that it was in. It didn't have finances at all. And so certainly there was no bus there. You know, there wasn't a budget or even a dream of a budget for them to be able to buy a bus there and do that. So he had an Oldsmobile that had a decent amount of seating in it. And so what he would do is he would take his Oldsmobile and anyone that, any family that wanted him to pick them up for church, he'd take, he'd pick them up, take them to church, drive out, and he would do it. He, he enjoyed doing that. He felt like that was part of his ministry. And in particular, families that wanted him to come and pick up their teens or their kids or whatever it may be, he always made sure that he considered his vehicle a tool for ministry. And so he would do that. And he was telling me one time, that it was very common for him, particularly in that more impoverished community, when he would come up to pick up a family to bring them to a worship service on a Sunday morning. He'd pull up to their house, and he'd get there, and he said, I can't tell you how many times the first person to greet me at those houses would be the father in that home, who'd already be a little bit drunk on a Sunday morning, yelling outside, saying something to the effect, and this is his own words, he, he said that typically he'd hear something like this, hey, the stupid preacher's here to pick you up for church. And he's like, you know what? Like, he'd hear that, spending his own gas, spending his own time picking these people up. Hey, stupid preacher's here to pick you up for church. And you look at that, and you think, okay, you know, I think often when, we, when we're doing something for the benefit of others, I think that we have in the back of our mind that what we're going to do or what we're doing is going to be appreciated um, or maybe encouraged or whatever it may be, uh, we expect that people are going to get behind us or maybe uh, show us respect or appreciation. But frequently, that's not really what it's like, at least initially, when you're serving in roles of leadership. It's kind of something we have to get out of our mind because it can become an idol that we start to live for. And when it's not there, then we don't know how to compute it. And my friend, you know, as he was telling me these stories, it's one of those things that the Lord taught him, like, hey, listen, you're not always going to be pat on the back when you seek to do the right thing. And when you look at this portion of scripture here in Nehemiah, Nehemiah was trying to do something for the benefit of a great amount of people. And right off the bat, he's not being pat on the back. He's not being embraced. He's not being supported. We're told that one of the first thing he, first things he encounters as he's trying to do this is opposition. 
So I would contend that if we're going to stick our neck out there to serve other people in any role of leadership, even, even something that we feel is maybe mostly behind the scenes, we still need to have in the back of our mind that in the midst of our life here on this earth, we shouldn't go through life not expecting opposition because that would be foolish to, to, to do that or to try and build up some kind of fantasy like that, that opposition won't be a reality of our experience. The fact is, we see in Christ's life, we see in Nehemiah's example, we see in Moses, we see in all these people that the Lord holds up to us as people that we kind of watch their biography play out or their roles of leadership play out in Scripture, what's it like? Well, it you know they experienced opposition. And here Nehemiah experiences it as well. And this passage here tells us that Nehemiah traveled as, he, as he's coming into Jerusalem with an entourage of army officers and horsemen. We see that he's got letters from the king, and they're signed that authorize him to do his work. So this is, this is his proof that the king has commissioned this. We, we're also told here that Nehemiah was seeking the welfare of the people of, of Israel. But again, there are people in the region that did not want to see God's people restored socially or spiritually. We're told here that Sanballat and Tobiah were particularly displeased and uh, they, you could kind of tell, and it's going to get into a little bit more of this as the book unfolds, but you can kind of tell that they're already crafting a way that they could be in opposition to what the Lord's called Nehemiah to do. But Nehemiah is being led by the Lord. And he had come to the people with the right motives, and he had come to the people with the right intentions, but now he was about to be opposed by those who had bad intentions for the people of Israel. And I want to throw this question out there, and you might already have a theory on this already. But why were they opposing him? Why were they opposing Nehemiah as he's come? You know, why is this opposition something that he's experiencing right away? There's an interesting comment that I want you to remember from 2 Corinthians. It's in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians Verses 14 down to verse 16. I want to read it and then talk about it for a second. But I think it sheds some insight onto why they were opposing him. And there it says this. It says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And then Paul says there, who is sufficient for these things? So think about that for just a second. What does that passage reveal to us about God's people? You know, in 2 Corinthians 2, it makes it clear to us that the Lord's leading us in victory. He's leading us in triumphal procession. We're not being led as a group of people that are defeated. We're being led as people who share the victory that Christ has secured on our behalf. And he makes himself known through us wherever he leads us. In every context that he leads you, in every context he leads me, he's making himself known through us, through our lives. In, in the conversations we have, in the people we meet, there are people that will get a glimpse of the kind of work that Christ does in a person's life through you and through me, as the Lord leads us in this victory. 
We have faith in Jesus Christ. And everywhere we're placed, every context he places us in, we are, as the scripture tells us here, the fragrance of Christ. And so to those who follow Christ or are open to receive him, um, we're the fragrance of life. We're a very delightful fragrance to those who follow Christ and those who are open to receive him. But to those who have no desire to receive Christ, the scripture tells us that we are, in fact, the fragrance of death. Just by, just by the fact that you're there. You know, to that person who is opposed to Christ, you're like the fragrance of death. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, what have I even done that this person doesn't like me? Or what have I even done that, that this person is opposing what God's called me to do? Well, if this person was open to the work of Christ, if they were receiving of Christ, you would be to them a fragrance of life. But because they are in opposition to the work of Christ, you are to them the fragrance of death. I made a mistake a few years ago that I still kind of laugh about. I was in a rush and I had agreed to meet a couple guys for a real early morning breakfast. And I I was getting ready and as I was about to leave, um, I don't know if you guys wear cologne or not. But I've always, like, since I was a kid, I've always kind of spritzed myself a little bit of cologne before I leave. And I was about to leave my house to go and meet these guys, and I was already running a little bit late. So I, I uh, took the cologne, and uh, I, I spritzed it, and the, the top, the sprayer, got stuck. <laughs> and uh, and I instead of just, like, a tiny little spritz that I wanted to put on, I ended up hitting it, and, like, because it, it got stuck, I pressed harder, and it just went, whoop. You know, and I was like, oh, and I was trying to get it off, and I thought I got enough of it off, and I'm like trying to like air myself out, and even as I'm driving to meet the guys, I had the air in the car on full blast, and the windows open, I was like, let me just kind of air this out, and I was like, I, I was like, I think I'm good, and uh, then I got in the restaurant, and the two guys were already there, and I sat down, and their first response was, whoa, <laughs> I think it like just hit everybody like a, like a, like just like a cloud, you know? And I was like, oh no, is it that bad? I, like I thought I had kind of, so I don't know, I was, I was way too fragrant for that lunch, I, or for that breakfast, I mean. And uh, it was kind of funny. But I, I look at this here, you know, and I, I think about it like in this context, like if you are a follower of Christ, by virtue of that, the scripture uses this whole concept of a fragrance that's coming from you, a fragrance of life or a fragrance of death. We are the sight and smell of the victory that Jesus has secured for all believers in him. So for some, when you, when you as the follower of Christ are in that context, you are a reminder to them of the judgment that awaits them because they live in rejection of Christ. And then for others, you're a reminder of the life they have in Christ and people viscerally respond to those realities. And like Nehemiah learned, as we look at this portion of Scripture, we can expect opposition when that reminder becomes quite potent. The more devoted you are to Christ, the stronger the fragrance seems to be. And the potency of that gets a response from people. And Nehemiah was somebody that, as people experienced him, they could see that the Lord was at work in him and through him, And that got a response. They could see this wasn't just a passive kind of person. This was somebody that was about to affect change. And they weren't comfortable with the kind of change that Nehemiah was about to lead. 
So when we experience that, that kind of opposition, I would say there's no, there's no reason for us to be surprised by it. Rather, we just need the Lord's wisdom to understand how to navigate it when it comes. Now, there's something else that this portion of Scripture brings out. And I want to point it out to us today. You're about to be in front of a group. You're about to be even, even in, in front of just one person, I would say, that this is still true. Know what you're talking about before you speak. Again, this is another aspect of the other side of leadership that I think is vitally important. Look at what it says in verse 11. It says, so Nehemiah says here, So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. And he says in verse 13, I went out by night by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Now let me pause there. What's Nehemiah doing? He's going out and he's gathering information. He hasn't yet addressed the people. He's there, and obviously people are curious about him and what he's come to do, and they could see this entourage with him. And, um, you know, we're going to see how this plays out in this chapter, but also in coming chapters. But for starters... You have Nehemiah coming, and he's inspecting. And in the coming chapters and verses, what we're going to see is we're going to watch the wisdom that the Lord grants Nehemiah playing out and how he chooses to lead. And again, I don't know what kind of leadership experience Nehemiah had uh, before he took on this task, although I do know he was privileged with being in the presence of the king as he was the king's cupbearer, so he's observing leadership in place. But one of the things that you see the Lord doing is equipping Nehemiah to lead the people wisely and uh, and to oversee this project wisely and i imagine when he first came to jerusalem it would have been very tempting for him to spill the details of everything he was planning to do he could have just laid it out bare because everybody's i'm sure curious about why this guy with an entourage of horsemen and army officials has now come into their presence but he doesn't want to do that just yet you know it was obvious that he was there for something big but he wasn't trying to draw attention to himself. He needed to do some quiet investigation without creating more of a scene. He wanted to get a first-hand look of the nature of what he was actually dealing with before he begins to address the people. And so it tells us here that by night, Nehemiah goes out very quietly without fanfare, has a couple guys with him, but he doesn't tell all the officials and nobles and everybody else what he's up to. And he goes out and he inspects the walls and he inspects the gates around Jerusalem. He discovers the walls are broken down, discovers that the gates have been burned. And um, as he's doing this, realizing that this is what he's here to address, and seeing the city of his ancestors in ruins like this, I can only imagine the kind of emotion that Nehemiah was experiencing as he was going through all of this, as he was doing all of this. And I also imagine he was probably looking at this and thinking, all right, if this is the condition of the walls, if this is the condition of the city, What might I expect of the hearts of the people if they've been willing to put up with this? And he's probably thinking about all of this. This is all in the back of his mind. But he's gathering information and he's preparing to address the people. But he wanted to know what he was talking about before he spoke. He wanted to know exactly what the situation was before he starts to address it in detail for the people. And I think that that's a very wise practice for us to observe in our lives as well. Because mankind has a bad habit of wasting words. Frequently, we've all done this and we've all experienced people doing this, but frequently we speak just to hear ourselves talk. 
You ever see this in, in uh, Ecclesiastes 6? It says this there. It says, the more words you speak, the less they mean. So what good are they? Or some translations have it like this. It says, the more the words, the less the meaning. Now, the more words you speak, the less they mean. So what good are they? Right? And often, you know, we'll experience, we've done this, so it's not just other people I'm, I'm talking about. We do this, but other people do this as well. We'll share something as fact, even though we're not confident about what we're speaking about. We just want to talk or have something to contribute to a conversation. And we talk and we talk and we talk. Abraham Lincoln had an interesting thought about that. And he was somebody that was always being addressed by people and always in meetings and things like that. And this is what he said. He said, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt. <laughs> I've always thought that was a funny quote, you know. It's like, it's like, I think that guy's a fool. He doesn't say anything. And then, then you speak out and they're like, now I'm certain that guy's a fool now that he's spoken. You know, I think a lot of times we just speak because we want to hear ourselves talk. But what pattern do we see in Jesus Christ? You know, when it comes to using our words, and our words are a powerful tool that the Lord's entrusted to us in our leadership, in our lifestyle, in our family, as brothers and sisters in Christ who are to mutually edify one another. It's one of the primary callings in your life and in my life as, a, as part of the body of Christ to edify one another and to use our words to do that. What pattern do we see in Jesus in the usage of words that we could also see on display here in Nehemiah's life? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, and then down to verse 28 and 29, Jesus says this. He says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. And then the assessment of the group is listed in verse 28 and 29. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. You see Christ being very intentional about how he used his words, not wasting his words. When he spoke, it wasn't just for the sake of being heard. What he was saying was true, and he was trying to make it clear that if people built their lives on him and the things that he taught, they were building their lives wisely on a solid foundation, the only solid foundation for life. And he used his words very intentionally. And you could see that spirit-led mindset present here in Nehemiah. The Lord was leading him. The Lord was granting him wisdom. The Lord was informing him. And now as he spoke to the people, what was going to happen is that Nehemiah was going to communicate in such a way that his words could be trusted and the people would be led with the same kind of mindset that our Lord leads us. And we watch that play out in this last section. Now, I will say this before I bring this last point up on the screen. This is a longer title for a point than what I normally use. But let me bring it up here. It's kind of like a paragraph. I recognize that. It's not really punchy and immediately memorable. But I think that there's a lesson for leadership here that we gain from this. And that's this. Consider the motives of those who jeer you before you internalize their words. Consider the motives of those who jeer you before you internalize their words. So this is what it says in verse 17. Then I said to them, so now Nehemiah is finally speaking after he's gathering the information. He says, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. 
And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. I love that response. Have you ever been blessed with a, like a, a great idea that you wanted to pursue, but because of the doubt or because of the critique of others, you eventually abandoned it because you felt like maybe it wouldn't be worth doing or uh, just something that you kind of lost motivation to pursue? Think about that moment for just a second and then kind of think a level deeper to what actually happened in that moment. Typically what happens is we begin to internalize the jeers and the words of our critics, and those become the voices that we begin listening to, even over the voice of God and even over the testimony of God's word. We start internalizing the jeers of those who are not seeking our welfare or the welfare of others, or who are not seeking the will and word of God, and we start internalizing those words, and it has an impact on what we decide to do. And here you have Nehemiah, having made an assessment of the walls, he addresses the people. And he points out to them, and he, you know, he says, listen, this is the trouble that we're in. Um, he recognizes that there would be physical and spiritual danger in leaving the walls in ruins. He realizes that they're now setting themselves up for enemy attack. Um, they're also setting themselves up, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, to the influence of pagan nations coming in and influencing the people to drift from a faithful walk with the Lord. And so Nehemiah, looking at all of this, he doesn't internalize the words of those jeering. And uh, the jeering's about to come. But I'm sure he's kind of gotten wind of this already. You know, this is something that's probably murmuring. He knows that he's kind of, kind of thrust himself into something that not everybody's going to embrace here. But Nehemiah looks at the people after making this assessment, and he looks at them, and he makes an important statement that I want us to notice. He says, let us rise up and build. He said, let us rise up and build. I love the fact that it's said that way, because I think that those are the words of a leader. He doesn't send them away and say, hey, you guys have got to get up and start building. That's not how he phrases it. He says, let us rise up and build. And what he's doing is he's inviting them to join him in this work. He wasn't just going to boss them around like a distant supervisor. He invites them to join him in this work. He was going to lead them through this, and they would all have dirty and calloused hands when this work was finally completed. This wasn't a job, he said, is for other people that he was going to now bark at. He says, let us do this. Let us do this rise up and build. All of our hands are going to be dirty. All of our hands are going to be calloused because of this task. But let's do this together. But we're told here that Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem would have none of this. You know, they look at this and they're like, no, like this is not to be. We need to stand in opposition of this. And we're told here that they jeered the people. 
And I believe that they were motivated with satanic motivations. And what they were trying to do is something that we see all throughout Scripture, and anecdotally you've probably also experienced throughout your life. This is a motive and method that Satan typically uses to try and thwart the people of God from doing what God has called them to do. Jeering, or mockery, or slander. It's one of Satan's favorite tactics. In fact, and I won't list the name of the book for... uh, You know, I don't want to give it too much credit, but there is a political book that was written in the past 50 years that talks about methods. I hear it sometimes mentioned in, um, you know, political seasons like the one we're in right now. But there was a book that was written in the past 50 years that talks about methods for which you can effectively discourage your opposition in their, you know, their campaign. And one of the tactics that's listed in this book is this. The jeering and the mockery and the slander. It's like if you can just dish out enough of that and you can invite people to join you in doing that, you can effectively discourage an opposing campaign. So this isn't something that was just used in Nehemiah's time. Satan's tactics are used... You know, I mean, he, he, he plays people like a fiddle sometimes, and so many people just kind of say, like, you know, they think they're in control instead of recognizing what's actually going on behind the scenes. And so here you have Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem jeering the people, and they're motivated with these satanic motivations to oppose the work of God, and they're trying to discourage the people of God from doing God's work. But Nehemiah was given insight into their motives as the Lord is speaking to him and giving him wisdom, and giving him counsel. And the Lord tells us that he does that for all believers, that he gives wisdom and counsel by the power of the Holy Spirit, that there are things that he will reveal to you through his word and through direct counsel in your times of prayer with him, where he will give you wisdom and insight that don't come from us, or doesn't come from us, as people who can speak proper English would probably say. Doesn't come from us. My wife's an English professor. i got to be careful. But it comes from him. He gives us that wisdom. He gives us that insight. And so without wavering, as Nehemiah is given this wisdom and insight from the Lord, Nehemiah says to them, and, and I wish I could hear the tone he, sa- he said this in. Because I don't think it was real passive. Sometimes when I, when I hear people quote these things, they say it in a real passive kind of light way. But he says here, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. And I imagine his hand was out, and he was probably pointing his finger, and he says, the God of heaven confidently, right in their face, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we're going to rebuild this wall. And it's basically like, mark my words. And I'm not saying this because of my own strength. I'm not saying this because of my own wisdom. I'm not saying this because of my own ability. I'm saying this is a work of God. And he is going to accomplish something that's going to blow your mind. And it's going to be right in front of your face. And you can jeer and you can make comments. But it will not stop us from doing what God has called us to do. So say what you're going to say. But you have no share in this place and in this work. And, you know, and, it, it, and he, he lets that stand. And this is in the midst of people, I'm assuming. And they're seeing Nehemiah stand up to these bullies. And they're watching him join them in the work. So he's getting his hand dirty. And he's standing up to the first test of opposition. And the people are inspired 
to join him and to do what God has called them to do. Because they're saying, all right, if Nehemiah is willing to take those arrows, and if Nehemiah is willing to join us in this work, and if Nehemiah just came from the king's palace where he was a cupbearer, but now wants to join us in getting his hands dirty to build this wall, I think it's time to build the wall. And they're inspired by this example. And basically he's saying that if God was behind this task, ungodly men with impure motives could not jeer them away from doing what God had called them to do. And I point that out because this is not a new tactic. In fact, when we look, and I know we have just a minute here before we finish up, but I want to point this out. Is this any different from what Jesus experienced when he was on the cross? Is this a tactic, that this jeering? Is this a tactic that was even used against Christ during the course of his earthly ministry? Yes, it was. In Mark chapter 15, we're told this. It says, the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. So notice those words, abuse, mockery, as they're just spitting out this venom toward Jesus Christ. And it says, ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. You know, what are they saying? You know, Jesus, you said you were going to, you said you were going to build something. Let's see you build it. And they mock. And they insult. And they critique. And does it stop Christ from doing what he had come to do? Not in the least. And has it stopped him from building his church over the past couple thousand years? Well, here we are, thousands of miles away from where that took place, worshiping Jesus, whom they thought they had defeated in their actions and in their words. And he rose from the grave, and he shares the victory, and he leads us, Scripture tells us, in triumphal procession as he accomplishes his work in our lives. If the Lord ever impresses upon your heart the desire to accomplish something for his glory and for the good of others, remember this portion of Nehemiah chapter 2. Do not be shocked in your role of leadership if you experience opposition. Expect it. It's what comes when you try and lead in this world. It's not new to you. It's not new to anyone that takes the risk to serve others in roles of leadership. But if you're leading and in a spot of influence, make sure that you know what you're talking about before you speak and consider the motives of those who speak against you to try and persuade you to stop doing what God's called you to do. Because in every work, every good work, there comes difficulty, there comes opposition, there comes trial, there comes seasons of discouragement. But the victory that Jesus Christ secured for us in his resurrection it reaches into all areas of the lives of those who believe in him. And Nehemiah was displaying this in the context and in the culture in which he lives. And again, if the Lord gives you an opportunity to influence even one other person, remember this example, because it plays out that same way in our lives as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the fact that when we have the privilege to look at it. We see you accomplishing things in generations past 
that give us a glimpse or an insight into what you're doing in our lives right now. Lord, we know that most aspects of leadership that we find ourselves serving in are not going to be things that come with a title. They're not going to be something where we wear some sort of a badge or have some sort of a prefix that comes before our name as a result of the leadership position you entrust to us. But Lord, we know that if you put us in a spot where we influence anyone, by default we are then in a position of leadership in that person's life. Lord, as we look at Nehemiah and we see the ways in which you impressed upon his heart to be all about the benefit of your people and the glory of your name, we realize, Lord, that he experienced great opposition. And he experienced all sorts of people that stood in his way. But then other people who sought to join him in the work that you had placed under his care. Lord, we pray that we would remember this example. We, w- we pray that we would have a better understanding of what leadership looks like when you call us to lead. And we pray that everything that we do would be for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that the words that we speak would glorify Christ. We pray that the actions we take would glorify Christ. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at these things, that we would never forget that everything that we endure this side of heaven, that we could look at our Savior and recognize that he's endured far worse. And we can rejoice in the fact that he was victorious over all of those things that sought to stood in the way that sought to stand in the way of his mission. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you loved us first, and we thank you for the ways that you work in our lives, and we pray that by your grace that we would walk with you faithfully each and every day. And again, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray for your strength and guidance from it. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Informal Bible Study. We hope that this was something that was helpful to you, particularly if you're a leader or if you're thinking about becoming a leader at some point in the future. As we mentioned at the start of the episode, if you're interested in becoming a supporter of this ministry, a couple quick ways you could do so. Uh, visit us at pastor.us to utilize some of the resources that we have available there. Or you can become a supporter by contributing to our hosting and production costs. And there's a link to do that as well on our website, which is pastor.us. And if you wouldn't mind leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes, we would be greatly appreciative of that. So that's it for us today. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we look forward to getting together with you again next Monday, right here. Thanks again. Is life feeling chaotic? I get it. I'm Rachel Wojo, host of the Untangling Life podcast. Don't miss the passionate encouragement and faith-based resources you need to help you clear your head and calm your heart. As Shell says, it feels like Rachel always knows what I need to hear. She keeps it real and is so humble. 
Her podcast is just the cherry on top. Enjoy Untangling Life with Rachel Wojo on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast app now.